But I want to tell you about when I was a little boy. When I was a little boy, I remember sitting on top of the stairs of our home. We had a double, a two-story ranch home. My father built it. He was a contractor. And I was sitting on the top of it, and I was bored, and I don't know if you've ever done this, if you're like me, but I've talked to one other person even today that experienced this or something similar. I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden in my little mind, I began to think, what does it mean to live forever? I mean, if the Bible is true and you put your faith in Jesus Christ and there's going to be an end one day to our lives here, but if it's true that we go on, which I believe it does, it is true, what's it mean to live forever? And I began to try to contemplate that as a little boy. And my mind tried to get around the thought of living day after day after day after day, never ever ending. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but my mind actually became dizzy. I remember that a physical sensation of dizziness. That happened often when I would think about that when I was a little kid. It's just the, the finite mind sometimes, well, ever really, it never can grasp the infinite. And so when we try to think on what is so deep or so high or so wide beyond us, sometimes our minds just can't handle it. I remember reading this verse from the book of Job. It's in the Old Testament. One of Job's friends asked him this question. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? And I began to understand that dizziness, that, that incomprehensible notion of living forever, that was me as a little boy or as a 49-year-old man, which I am today, trying to grasp what cannot be grasped. Can you really find out the limit of the Almighty? Friends, you know what? I want to tell you something that I think is so profoundly exciting. There will never be a day in eternity. Now, I want you to think forward for a moment. I want you to imagine being in eternity. You can call it heaven if you want. Really, it's the new Jerusalem comes out of the heaven onto a new earth. Whatever you want to call it, that's fine. But I want you to think of eternity and glory with God. No more tears, no more death, no more dying, no more pain. That's what the Bible calls it. That's how the Bible describes it. Infinite joy, serving, working. You're going to like to work in eternity. I know that's an inconceivable notion for some of us, but you're actually going to enjoy it because it's going to be sweet labor. It's not going to be working for somebody that's impossible to please. And you're actually going to love the people you're around. And I want you to think of living that, that eternity day after day. But listen, here's what I want you to grab hold of, if you can, just a little bit this, this sermon. I want you to grab a hold of the fact that even after millions and millions, and let's go even bigger, billions and billions and trillions and quadrillions, I don't know how long your mind can go forward into eternity, but I want you to go as forward as far as you can, and I want you to know that you will never, ever, ever exhaust the knowledge of who God is. Do you realize that, that there will never be a day when you can finally say in eternity, I think I've tapped out God. I know everything there is about him. 
you will never get, I will never get to the bottom of what there is to know about God. He is infinite. He is inexhaustibly deep. And he wants to be known by his people. He is inviting us to know him, even here on earth. So my hope for 2016 is that you get to know God more deeply, more wonderfully, more intimately, more closely than you ever did in 2015. And one of the ways that I want to help you on that journey, in that relationship, because it's a relationship with God, it's not a rules, it's not a set of rules, it's a relationship. And one of the ways I want to help you is through maybe a fresh approach to the Lord's table. That's what we're going to focus on today. The Lord's table, it is mind-dizzyingly deep, and I just made that word up. And I'm pretty sure that if I were to preach on communion or the Lord's table the rest of my life, the only limit that I'm ever going to reach would be the one that comes when I'm not studying enough. Communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, to never-ending demonstration of God's grace. So I want to spend our first worship service of the new year together looking at the table of grace. Now I want you to stare actually at that table for a moment. Nothing weird. Not doing anything odd here. I just want you to look at it for a moment. And I want you to kind of get your mind oriented in thinking of it as a table of grace. And we're going to look at this, we're going to look at the table of grace, the Lord's Supper, through an incident that happened to King David, the king of Israel, that is recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 9. So I want you to get your Bibles out, 2 Samuel chapter 9. If you didn't bring your Bible, there is a blue pew Bible in front of you. It's page 260. So if you can open that up to page 260. And while you turn there, let me tell you that David has a best friend. Now, how is this for odd? Nobody talks like this today. Jonathan and David, best friends, and they said, your love is better than a woman's. Now, nobody says that. Guys, if you came up here to me, and you said to me, you know what? You are such a good friend of mine. Your love is better than a woman. I am running. Do you understand that? I might punch you. I don't know. I probably wouldn't. I might want to, but listen, this is just not spoken like this today, but this is how close David and Jonathan were. Your love is better to me than a woman. That's what he said. That's what they said to each other. So I want you to understand the closeness, the friendship that they had. See, Jonathan was the son of Saul. Saul was the king of Israel. Jonathan was his son, and Jonathan dies in battle. So doesn't his father Saul. They die in battle, and David is made the king of Israel. So now Jonathan and David, best friends, he is mourning, he is grieving. Jonathan is dead, David is king. But they said something, they made a covenant. They made a promise to each other when, they were, when Jonathan was alive. In fact, the Bible records it for us in 1 Samuel 20, you can see it on the screen, Jonathan asked David to promise him, do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. Now, when you say my house in the Bible, 
That's not really talking here, at least, about a physical structure. It's talking about my line, my genealogy. Do not cut off your love, your steadfast love, from my children and my grandchildren and so on. And David agrees. He becomes king, and he wants to keep this promise to his best friend, David, who is no longer alive, and we're going to watch it unfold in 2 Samuel chapter 9. That's what this passage is all about. David keeping his promise to the son of Jonathan. Here's what we're going to learn. I'm going to give you three points, and I think it's a good way to approach what we're calling the table of grace. Here's the first one. The Lord's Supper, that's what we're going to be doing in a few minutes. The Lord's Supper is a continual demonstration of God's mercy and grace. It's a continual demonstration of God's mercy and grace. Now let's get in the Bibles. Let's see what God has told us. Verse 2, 2 Samuel chapter 9. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, and this is David, of course, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God to him. And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Now I want you to hold on to that. He is crippled in his feet. I'm going to tell you how that happened in a little bit. So David is looking, he's the king of Israel, he's looking for someone that is in the house of Saul. You remember, Jonathan was Saul's son. So he's looking for somebody in the house of Saul, the house of Jonathan, that he could show kindness to. There's no compulsion forcing him to show kindness. There's no mandate that is making him do this. Listen, David loved Jonathan so much that he wants to show kindness to Jonathan's kids. So he wants to be loving. He's willing to be loving. What's motivating him is his love. Now, you know what would normally happen, right? Let's say that, that I became the king of a country. That's a scary thought, isn't it? I don't even know why I'm using myself. It's a little bit narcissistic. I understand that. It's kind of a nice thought, though, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. Let's say that I become the king of a country. And when I become the king, now listen, this is Old Testament times. This is exactly what happened. When I become the king, here's what's going to happen. The pages of scripture are all about this happening. I'm going to get rid of all my competition. If you are a child or a grandchild or somewhere in, as an heir of the former king, you're a threat to my kingdom. You can lead an uprising and make, make a claim to the throne. So I'm going to eradicate you. And you can use your imagination to see how I'm going to do that. That's customarily what would happen. But not David. Remember, David is a man after God's own heart, the Bible says. He, he acts like God. So David is looking to show kindness to anybody from the house of Saul. Any other king is going to kill anybody from the house of Saul. This is why Ziba is so hesitant in verse 2 and 3. This is why he's sort of stumbling, if you read it carefully, but not David. David wants to show kindness to somebody. Not kindness because it would gain something for himself, but kindness because he loved Jonathan so much. 
And not kindness from his own fallen heart, like he mustered the kindness just because he was a kind man. Listen, David wasn't really that kind of a man. He wasn't always very gentle. Don't you remember Naboth, who means fool? He was on his way to kill the man because the man would not feed his army and his own, Naboth's own wife intervened. So David had a mean streak. He had an impulsive nature. He had a temper. He wasn't a naturally kind person. Now you probably know, can you think of somebody that's just naturally kind? I mean, it just seems like nothing ruffles the person. David's a fighter. David's a warrior. He's not naturally kind. What's coming from his heart is not his natural kindness. It's the kindness of God. Now look at verse 3 again. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I might show the kindness of who? Not the kindness of David. He's not a kind person. He's a warrior. It's the kindness of God. He wants to show God's kindness. Now that word is really important. So let me, let me kind of camp on that for just a moment. You ready? This is a bit of a language lesson. Don't close your eyes. This is not nap time. There's a couple of you here that I so want to call out because I know you're about to just take a little siesta. Don't do it. I can't call you out because I'm on camera. Some of you who do take naps during the sermons, would you please come to Mark Street on Sunday morning? Because I will definitely call you out there. <laughs> Kindness is the Hebrew word hesed. Everybody say hesed. That was weak. Let's try it one more time. Everybody say hesed. The Old Testament is translated from Hebrew language. The New Testament is translated mostly from Greek and a little bit of Aramaic. So this is a Hebrew word, and the word hesed is absolutely amazing. It's one of the best words in the entire Old Testament. It's a word that means mercy. It's a covenantal word. You know what the word covenant means? We don't use that a whole lot today, but it's, the word means a contractual promise. So this is a contractual promise for mercy, and mercy, when God gives it to us, is to be shown to somebody else. Now listen, watch this. When God pours mercy on you, it's never to end with you. It's never to stop with you. It's to go out to other people. Now look at me for a moment. Mercy never goes to people who deserve it. I mean, listen, we would love to be merciful. We would love to be loving to people who are easy to love, to people who love us, people who are kind, people who are easy to be with, but that's not the target of mercy. God's mercy comes to us, and it's got to flow out, and it always flows to people who do not deserve it. That's the power of the word kindness. See, if you experience God's kindness, God's mercy, then that has to move, it has to reciprocate to other people. When someone shows us mercy, we should be ready to give that mercy back when the opportunity arises. But we cannot, listen, you've got to get this in your mind, you cannot ever show mercy to God. Now think about that for a moment. You cannot ever show mercy to God. Why? 
Mercy always goes to someone who does not deserve it and who has wronged you. God doesn't fit either category. He does deserve your love and adoration. He does deserve my eulogy, my blessing. He has never wronged you. Listen, there's times in your mind where you might think that God has wronged you. You might really truly believe that God has wronged you. And you might reciprocate anger to God and judgmentalism to God and accusation to God. But the reality, the truth is, there's no room in God's heart to wrong you. He cannot even, literally, he cannot even do it. This is what David means when he desires to show the kindness of God to the household of his former enemy, King Saul. Remember, Saul tried to kill him repeatedly. So we see God's mercy, his hesed, his kindness clearly in the Lord's Supper. And you get to Ephesians chapter 2. Now that's in the New Testament. You can see it on the screen behind me. And we read this, but God being rich in mercy. God is wealthy in mercy. Have you ever thought of that? He holds all of the commodity of it. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, even when we were dead in our sins, that's what that word means, by grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So here's the first way you approach the table of grace. This is a demonstration of God's willing, voluntary kindness to you. Now you ready? Now listen, look at me for a moment. Do you truly believe you deserve God's mercy? Let me tell you what you would have to be like to deserve God's kindness. You would have to have never broken any of the moral law, what we call the Ten Commandments. You would have never been able to have been selfish or self-seeking. You could never have lied, even in your mind, deceived anybody else. You could never have fudged the truth. You could never have lusted after another human being or object called coveting. You could never have been greedy. You could never have been immoral. Listen, do you really think that you or me deserve God's kindness? Can I answer on behalf, perhaps, of everybody in the congregation? I will tell you, I am a horrible sinner. Actually, I'm very good at it. That's the problem. I'm a sinner saved by grace because I put my confidence, my trust in Jesus Christ. Now the Bible calls me a saint. But I'm a saint, like you are, Christian, who still sins. Who is still in need of God's mercy, God's grace, and it's going to move us to the second point, and here it is. The Lord's Supper is a continual reminder of that need. It's a continual reminder of that need. There is still somebody from Saul's house that's still alive. Now listen, this is a a lesson in pronunciation. His name is Mephibosheth. That is a very odd name. I'll tell you what it means in a little bit. His name is Mephibosheth, and here in verse 3, the second half of it, Ziba, who was a household servant, said to the king, who is David, there is still a son of Jonathan, he is crippled in his feet. 
How did he become crippled? Jonathan and Saul were killed in battle. When they heard about it, the nursemaid, the lady that was in charge of taking care of Mephibosheth, who was five years old, a to- he was older than a toddler, but just a little boy, she picks him up to flee the city because normally once you kill the king, you come and destroy his city. You demolish his city. So she thinks and believes, and probably they were, coming there to kill everybody in Saul's household. He already, they already killed Jonathan, the son of, of Saul. Now they're going after Mephibosheth the grandson of Saul she picks him up she begins to run and she trips and she drops him and she cripples both of his feet it's not congenital this was an accident and so from that point on Mephibosheth from five years old on is lame in both feet do you know what a person's life in the Old Testament time was like when they were lame and crippled. They didn't have wheelchairs. They didn't have prosthetics. They were entirely dependent on other people. They were unable almost always to earn a living. They were reduced to sitting by the city's gates. These were where the, the city's gates was the place where a person would go to beg. If they could not make it in life, they went to the city's gates, and that's where all the merchants came in, all the merchants went out of the city, and they would beg and plead for people to give money. That's the life of a lame, crippled person. It was debilitating, it was helpless, it was humiliating. Do you know that they never allowed a lame priest to serve in the temple of God? Did you know that they never, ever would sacrifice to God a lame animal in the Old Testament? Lameness was a metaphor of something that was unremarkable, unmarketable, unattractive, undesirable. It's really a metaphor for a sinner like all of us who are in need of God's grace. So now when you read about Mephibosheth, and you read that he was crippled in both feet, now listen, don't just think of a five-year-old little boy. Think of every single human being who has stumbled and fallen into sin. For while we were still weak, Romans says, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That was all of us. We're crippled by sin. We're unable to stand in God's righteous presence. Now, this is what I deal with all the time as a pastor. I come, ag- I come across people all the time who think that they can stand in God's presence because of their own righteousness, because of their own efforts, because they go to church, or because they do a lot of good things, or they're just really nice people. And I meet a lot of really nice people. But nobody's niceness, nobody's self-kindness, self-righteousness can stand or, or make themselves stand in front of God. Everybody is lame, everybody is crippled, everybody is sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it makes you think, or at least it makes me think, can you, can you even think of one reason, even one why you deserve eternal life. I love what John Newton said. He said that when you get to heaven, there will be three wonders, and here they are. One, who is going to be there. 
Number two, who's not going to be there. And number three, the fact that I'm there. That was John Newton. John Newton, much godlier than I will ever be, was amazed at the grace of God, which is why he wrote the most famous song, Amazing Grace. Listen, he knew John Newton did. There's really no reason intrinsically in ourselves that we would be or deserve eternal life. So we get back to our text and look at verse 6. 2 Samuel chapter 9, look at verse 6. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his feet and paid homage. Now Mephibosheth is thinking, he's got to be thinking, David is going to kill me. I am a competition for the throne. I'm the heir of Saul. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should, should show regard for a dead dog such as I? I mean, this is an amazing story if you understand the way that things normally worked. He had to be terrified. Did you notice what David said to him? Can you look at your text again? Do you notice what he said? Do not fear. That's a little clue for us. Mephibosheth was shaking. He was absolutely terrified. Because here he is, grandson of David's former enemy Saul, a crippled rival to the throne. His very life was in the hands of the king. He had absolutely nothing of which to barter for his life. Nothing. No worth of his own. No merit to stand on. No value to David. He could not say to David, listen, don't kill me because I can do this for you. Don't kill me because I've done this for you. Don't. He had nothing. Nothing. He had done nothing to deserve the blessings that David was about to give him. Now, I want you to get this picture in your mind because this is the way that you approach communion. This is the way that you approach the table of grace. You come with hands that are empty outward. Don't think for a moment I mean literally. I'm talking the pose of a beggar. I'm talking the mindset of one who knows, I have nothing to give you, God. I have empty hands. I am asking for your kindness. Not because I deserve it, not because I've earned it, but because I know that you're willing to give it. And David said to him, I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. That's a picture of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. In fact, you go back to Ephesians 2, you get to see it. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Now listen, that's it. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of working for it so that no one may boast. It's empty-handed salvation. It is so easy Are you not like me in this? How easy it is 
to take communion, to eat the bread and drink the juice thoughtlessly. I mean, we do it every month. We do it the first weekend of every month. It can become rote. You don't really, your soul sometimes is not stricken. You know, we're not amazed at God's grace because we do this all the time. But no one comes limping to the Lord's Supper. No one comes limping into salvation. Listen, they are carried into salvation by the grace of God. Every one of us were blind, not blind, but we were beggars because we were crippled. Nobody walked into salvation. Everybody has been carried to it. But you do this month after month and you can begin to no, yes, I was saved by grace, but now I've got my life together. Now I can live in my own efforts. Now I can live because I'm going to buckle down, I'm going to knuckle down, and I'm going to make 2016 the year that I learned to pray, the year that I get through the Bible, the year that I love those who are hard to love, the year that I serve those who don't deserve anything. And we say, you know what, I'm going to do it because of my own meritorious effort. And the truth is, you're going to fail. I'm going to fail. You are saved by the gospel and we are saved continually by the gospel it's got to be god's work have you ever wondered why verse 13 in our text is even in the bible second samuel 9 verse 13 can you look at it with me why is this there so mephibosheth lived in jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table now he was lame in both his feet. Why is that there? He was brought to the king's city. He ate as a son at the king's table, but he was still lame in both feet. Listen, if you cut that out of your Bible, you've got a truncated, a narrow, a, an out-of-date version of the gospel. You don't understand it. He didn't all of a sudden get up and walk. David didn't say, Mephibosheth, I'm going to bring you into my home. I'm going to feed you and I'm going to bless you. And Mephibosheth stood up and jumped and rejoiced and ran. He was lame the rest of his life. There's a reason that's in the Bible. There's a reason why Jesus told us to continually observe this ordinance. Do it for the rest of your life. There's a reason for it. You know why? Here it is. You ready? This kills your pride. This kills my pride. Because when you rightly approach the table of grace and there are confronted again with the truth that you are still lame in both feet, meaning that if you're going to do anything glorifying for God, it's going to be His power working in you. You haven't arrived. You don't you're not to the place where you don't need Jesus. You were saved by the gospel. That's what brought you to the table. And you are still continually saved by the gospel. It's still giving you the power to live a life where you could bear fruit like love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. This is all the power of God working in you so that you can live in a way that says, I'm kind of living like God. 
the way that we remain awestruck at the table of grace is to remember we didn't walk here. We didn't bring ourselves to it. And that doesn't produce low self-esteem. Listen, my background's in counseling. I've done a lot of studying on low self-esteem. The world will tell you that if you really understand that you're lame and you're crippled in both feet, spiritually speaking, well, that's going to produce low self-esteem. And I'm going to tell you, as somebody that's experienced it and counseled a lot of people through it, no, it's going to give you the greatest freedom you've ever had. It's going to be glorifying because God gets the credit and he can take anybody's broken life and he can restore it. He can give you a purpose for living. That's the greatest self-esteem you'll ever get. It produces humility where you want to lie low to the ground. You want everybody else to get the credit. Can you imagine being married? I might have to imagine this one. Can you imagine being married and actually being humble? I have to imagine because that's really not my nature. I'm married to a person who does this a lot better than I do. But can you imagine being humble where you lie low to the ground and you really want to serve your spouse? You really want to love your spouse. You really want to love your children. You see your children as people that you can invest in that are not on the planet to serve you, but you can serve them even though you're in authority. That's an amazingly freeing notion. There is no healthier place than at the Lord's table, realizing that you are in constant need of God's grace. And he is in constant willingness to give it. It is only through the death of Jesus that we have the favor of God. It's only through his death that you can have the peace of God. It's only through his death that you can have the hope of eternal life. It's only through the death of Jesus you can have the strength to obey God, and it's only through his death. You can have a new nature that's empowered by the Spirit of God to live in a way that's pleasing to him. But there's one more way to come to the Lord's table, and I want to encourage us as we end with this. The Lord's Supper is a continual promise of our restoration. You know, when I did the Nehemiah series, I introduced to you the Japanese art of repairing pottery called kintsugi. It's amazing. I love looking at these pictures. Because they take broken pottery and they actually fill in the cracks with a gold resin and lacquer. They want to magnify the cracks. Kind of different, very different from what we do. We like to hide the blemishes, right? You don't put broken china on your china cabinet. The Japanese would. They want to highlight it. Kintsugi means golden joinery. And they do this believing that when something's suffered damage, well, now it has a history, and that history makes it more beautiful. So let me just ask you honestly, do you have some cracks? Now, I think you know what I mean by that. go there in a couple directions. Let me take you in at least two. Number one, have you made some mistakes in 2015 that you maybe even shudder at? You don't want to see them. You're glad they're in the rearview mirror. 
You don't ever want to repeat them. You don't want to ever see them again. You want to hide them. You want to obliterate them. You want to cover them over and conceal them. Or maybe come at it from one other direction. There's probably a lot of directions you can do this at, but let me just maybe mention one more, and that is, are you experiencing some brokenness in your own life? You just can't make it work anymore. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's a battle against drugs or alcohol. Maybe it's a job that you hate and you don't know how to live without that job. Maybe it's a relationship you're not married. Maybe it's one you're dating. And they've caused some fractures, they've caused some pain, they've caused some heartache and some memories that you really don't want, but listen, they're there. Maybe you experience the death of someone that you love, maybe the death of a baby. I don't know all your lives, I know that we all experience pain, we all go through storms. And those cracks, those areas that were broken god is not going to conceal them he's actually going to highlight them not in golden color but in red and if you know what i mean that's the blood of christ and he will heal you he will restore you he will give you a purpose when you have faith and when you trust him there is a depth of beauty in the restoration of something that was severely damaged Now look at this unfold in verse 8 of our text. Mephibosheth receives David's kindness. He knew the extent of his need, and he responds this way. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? This is not low self-esteem. This is humility. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Remember that name? Remember I told you I was going to tell you what Mephibosheth means? It just rolls weirdly off of our tongues when we say it. Does anybody here know of a person named Mephibosheth? Is anybody here named Mephibosheth? Will anybody promise me that when they have a baby, they will name that baby Mephibosheth? Girl or boy? Thank you. Derek? Excellent. You probably would. Biblical names are important. Now watch this. They're always important. Names capture a person's character, nature, personality. By the way, do you know what your name means? If you don't, you ought to maybe look that up. The name Mephibosheth, originally when he was born, was called Meribale. His birth name was Meribale, but it was changed to avoid any similarity to the Canaanite god named Baal. And this happened a lot in the Bible. A lot of people's names were changed. Jerob Baal was changed, became Jerob Besheth. Ish Baal became Ish Bosheth. A lot of them changed because when they began to live among the Canaanite people, the Israelites did, they didn't want any association with the Canaanite god. So they changed their names. Meribale was changed to Mephibosheth. And now ready, watch this. And the name means shame breaker. That's amazing. Shame breaker. God's grace, when responded to, 
God's grace, when responded to by utter deep humility, listen, has the power to break the shame that's in your heart. Listen, that regret it can break. That sense that I've failed and I am a failure, God's love and grace can break it. That sense that I will always be a failure, that there's no way that I could be anything but a failure, God's grace can break it. This is a continual reminder that God is a shame breaker. He is a restorer of broken people. He is the Japanese art of kintsugi glorified. He magnifies the breaks and he brings that magnification to bear so that everybody can see how great our God is. Behold, Zephaniah wrote, and I love this passage. God is speaking. At that time, I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame, the Mephibosheths, and gather the outcasts. Do you feel like an outcast? And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together. For I will make you renowned and praised among the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This lame man, Mephibosheth, was brought to the king's table Given the position of a son, his fortunes were restored, his shame was broken. That's what this table means. The Lord's Supper is a continual demonstration of God's mercy and grace. It's a continual reminder of our need. It's a continual promise of our restoration. When we do this, and I'm about to close, when we observe the Lord's Supper, we ask that only those who have put their faith in Jesus, the Son of God, to save them and rescue them from their sins. Only if you have done that should you participate in this. And that's not to make you feel like an outsider. That's to motivate you to make that decision. To not rely on your works, rely on your own self-righteousness, rely on your own goodness. Because listen, your goodness, your self-righteousness, it's crippled you. It has lamed you. You cannot stand in God's sight based on that. So Jesus did what we could not do. He lived for 30 or 33 years perfectly. He upheld every one of God's laws. He never sinned. And he died on that cross as a spotless lamb of God, a lamb that was not lame, a lamb that was not crippled, a lamb who was sufficient to pay for our sins. And when you say to God, God, I now believe that A, I'm a sinner, I have fallen short of your glory, and I can't do anything about it in my own power, and secondly, B, you can do something, and I think you did, I believe you did, you sent your son to die in my place so that I could live forever. When you believe that, when you ask him to forgive you your sins, he will forgive those sins, and he will come live in your heart. And he will begin giving you the power of a restored life. He will help you learn to live in a way that pleases him.